God, thank you for the opportunity we've had to be together this morning to um, sing and pray and worship, be together, to rejoice. And uh, God, now as we transition to um, just a few moments of diving into your word and looking specifically at what you would have for us. God, I pray that uh, you would use me as an instrument of your grace and mercy, an instrument of the gospel. I pray that during this time uh, that we would make much of Jesus, that Jesus would be lifted high and we would be drawn to you because of that. God, I pray that you would speak to our hearts and minds, that you would draw us to yourself. God, help us to hear from you. Help us to have eyes to see and ears to hear. And God, we ask this in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus. Amen. So like I said, uh, John chapter 9 this morning, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at chapters 7 and 8. Chapters 7 through 9 together uh, are the story of Jesus at his last feast of booze before his death and resurrection. Um, Just as a quick reminder, the Feast of Booze is also known as the Feast of Tabernacles or the Ingathering Feast, or you might see it on a modern calendar um, as Sukkot. And uh, this was the last of the fall festivals, a week-long event held at the end of the agricultural year when the grapes and olives were harvested sometime in September or October. And it was intended to be a pilgrimage feast, right, where uh, everybody would come to Jerusalem to the temple And ultimately, the purpose of the feast was designed uh, so that God's people would remember um, their time in the the wilderness when God had delivered them from Egypt to the promised land. That was the point of what was going on, chapter 7 through 9 of John. A reminder, a pointer back to the wilderness journey when God provided for them and led them. In keeping with the purposes of remembering that wilderness journey, one of the ceremonies that took place uh, was called the illumination of the temple. And it was the ceremony where this ritual lighting of four different golden oil-fed lamps would be lit at night in the temple. And these lamps were these huge candelabras burning in the temple at night to remind the people of the pillar of fire that had guided Israel in their wilderness journey. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about some of the water ceremonies that happened uh, during this this feast as well to remind them of God's provision of water uh, in the desert. And another, like I said, another ceremony that happened was this lighting, this ritual lighting of these candelabras in the temple. And it's against the backdrop of that lighting, those candelabras in the temple, Then in John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Right? There can be no mistaking that in this time of remembering God's provision while they were wandering in the desert, there can be no mistaking that Jesus is saying, just like God led you in the desert, I will lead you now. If you just open your eyes to follow me, if you open your eyes to see who I am. Constantly throughout the book of John, light and darkness are themes um, that we see over and over and over. And John chapter 9 is literally a story designed to illustrate the fact that Jesus illuminates the darkness, that Jesus brings sight where there was no sight. 
In this chapter, we see a man go from physical blindness to spiritual, I mean, physical blindness to physical sight. We see the same man go from spiritual blindness to spiritual sight. And we see the people who should be able to get it. We see the people who should be able to see Jesus clearly for who he is as God's Messiah, as God's Savior, will willingly choose to remain blind. So with that said, we'll dive into chapter 9. There are really three movements that happen in chapter 9. Verses 1 through 7 is the actual account of Jesus healing this blind man in a rather unusual way. Um, Verses 8 through 34 is the movement in which a bunch of people begin to question the blind man and his parents about what has happened. And then in verses 35 through 41, Um, We see Jesus' final interaction with this blind man, as well as the religious leader's final reaction uh, to what Jesus has done here. And uh, the way that I'll move forward this morning is I'm going to read each of those movements, read those verses for us, and then just take a moment and talk about um, what's contained in those verses or what we see there. And then at the end, I'm going to just give us a couple of takeaways that we can carry with us. But John chapter nine, verses one through seven. says, as he he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day, Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud, said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Right, so the story is that Jesus passes by this blind man And the disciples ask a question, but they ask the question assuming that they already know partially what the answer is. Who sinned that this man is blind, he or his parents? The assumption is that some sort of particular sin led to this man's blindness. And the only options that the disciples give Jesus are that it was this man or his parents. Right? The assumption is that this man's blindness, that this man's life of suffering is the result of either his or his parents' particular sin of some sort. And I think we have to recognize that his life would have been a life of suffering. We can't think of blindness in our modern, tech, in our modern context. We have to think of it in an ancient context, devoid of modern enhancements of any sort, um, where this man would have lived a rough life life. For us, the idea of a child sinning in utero just doesn't make sense, but nonetheless, that's part of the assumption here that the disciples present. On the other hand, the idea of suffering because we've done something wrong, that's not really foreign to the modern mind. That's kind of the way many people see the world, Right? Surely you've heard people say, I've heard it. God, what did I do to deserve this suffering? What did I do to deserve this misfortune or whatever else it is that has come my way? Assuming the only answer is that we've done something to cause punishment. 
And for people who have a primarily moralistic view of life, that's the normal way of thinking. What have I done to deserve this? Part of the problem with that line of thought is that it leads to tremendous pride and self-righteousness as well. Right? Because if you're suffering, well, that is the result of your sin. But if I'm not suffering, if my life is going great, well, then that's the result of my righteousness. But what Jesus says here is this. This man's blindness is not the result of his sin or his parents' sin. It's not some sort of punishment, but rather there's something else at play. Part of what's at play here is Jesus working to make God known. We have to acknowledge that suffering and evil exist in this world, ultimately because our world has fallen. Our world is not as God intended it to be. Disease and blindness and all sorts of other physical ailments, these are not things God intended for the world. So we have to acknowledge that some suffering and evil, or that suffering and evil in general exists because our world is fallen. It's just not what God intended. In the case of this man born blind, though, there's more to the story. Now, with that said, I got really bogged down in verses 3 through 5 this week when thinking about and preparing for this sermon because there are a lot of nuances to how these verses can be interpreted and explained and I think even taken out of context to some extent. And I won't go into great detail of all the time spent reflecting on these verses. I'll just simply say this. The problem of evil... The reality of suffering, the presence of sickness and injustice, and all the other evils in the world, well, these are some of the greatest challenges to my faith, cause the greatest amounts of doubts that I might have. And even though those things can be explained by the brokenness of our world, it's still a challenge to reckon with the evil and suffering and injustice that exists in our world. The only place I can land that brings any sort of peace is here. God's ways are mysterious, that I'll never understand them fully. But even in the midst of God's mysterious ways, God shows himself to be good over and over and over and over. God shows himself to be faithful over and over and over. And we see that happening in this text right here that God is at work for this man, even though we may fully never come to grips with why he had to suffer the things he did before God shows up and heals him. And I'm not at all presuming that it is easy for anyone that is suffering some sort of physical or mental ailment to believe that God is good, that God is at work despite us maybe not being able to see how. There's sometimes great difficulty in believing that God is good when things are terrible. It's the reality of life. But there is great comfort to be found in words like this, like these words from Lamentations chapter 3. Seems an odd place to find comfort. Lamentations chapter 3 verses 31 through 33 says this, For no one is cast off by the Lord forever, though he brings grief He will show compassion. So great is his unfailing love. For he does not willingly bring affliction or grief to anyone. 
right? The day will come when this world will be redeemed, when our bodies and minds will be healed, and sickness and ailment and death and injustice will be no more. And we know this because Jesus has died on the cross and he has risen from the grave and he has conquered sin and death and like him, one day our bodies too will be raised. God's creation will be redeemed. The work of God will be displayed in ways that resound to his glory, to our joy. And we see a foretaste of that future redemption right here in this story as God heals this man and gives him sight for the first time. It's undoubtedly a picture of what's to come. But it's also John very specifically saying that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is God sent one to bring light to the dark. John even emphasizes that when he talks about Jesus sending the man to the the pool, the pool that's called sent. Jesus is is God sent one to bring light to the dark. Jesus is God come to earth to bring light to the dark. One of the expectations about Israel's coming Messiah that you see in the Old Testament, especially throughout the book of Isaiah, is that the Messiah would come and that he would give sight to the blind. Jesus actually does this over and over and over through the Gospels. There are more acts of healing the blind recorded in the Gospels than any other type of healing recorded. One scholar has pointed out that there are no accounts of the blind being healed in the Old Testament. There are no accounts of the disciples healing blind people either. And therefore, as we read chapter 9, we have to see it as John fully revealing Jesus as Israel's Messiah and Savior. We've talked about this over and over through the book of John. But at the end of John, John tells us the reason that he wrote the book. The reason that he wrote the book was to inspire faith in Christ. And here, John is saying, this is fully um, God's sent one. This is the one who can heal the blind. This is the one who can bring light where there's darkness. This is one who can restore sight. If John is trying to get people to believe in Jesus and place their faith in Jesus, well, this story in John 9 fully illuminates the fact that Jesus is the light of the world. Right, that's what John wants us to see. Verses 8 through 34, this is a big section of verses. I'll read them. It'll take a moment to get through them all. John 8, I mean John 9, verse 8 through 34. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg some said it is he others said no but he is like him he kept saying i am the man so they said to him then how were your eyes opened and he answered the man called jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me go to siloam and wash so i went and washed and received my sight they said to him where is he He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. 
But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such things? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? And he said, he is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? And his parents answered, we know that this is our son, that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. The Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. And he answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. I said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I've told you already. You would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? They reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man more born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? They cast him out. I love the boldness of the man who has been healed in this passage, and I love the sarcasm that shows up, right? It just comes through, and it's kind of beautiful. Um, but he's bold in his understanding of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, all the while the uh, Pharisees and the religious leaders who are listening to the story and hearing what's been said are just unwilling to accept what they've heard. And I'll just quickly say a couple of things about these verses. In 8 uh, through 13, the neighbors of this man, what they're doing is they're launching an inquiry to determine if this truly was the blind man they knew to be blind. Ultimately, they come to the point where they don't doubt the miracle, but they just kick the whole thing to the Pharisees and they check out. Uh, in verses 14 through 17, the religious leaders question the man about the healing, but their chief concern is that the healing ha happened on the Sabbath. Right, and then in verses 18 through 23, the religious leaders question the man's parents, but the man's parents are fearful, so they deflect the questioning back to their son. And then in 24 through 34, uh, we see this very sharp division between the man and the leaders. They claim to be followers of Moses. They claim to be people who can see, who know, and even though they are clear, clearly blind due to their own pride and suffering. They even say, you were born in sin. <laughs> we weren't. And in verse 25, we have some of the most famous words in all of Scripture. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. 
What's so striking about that statement is that these words are the universal testimony of every person who has ever come to faith in Jesus. At some point, we all who follow Jesus were spiritually blind, and at some point, Jesus showed up and cut on the lights, and we got it. It may have happened quickly, it may have taken time, but at some point, Jesus gave us eyes to see and ears to hear. And the testimony of this blind man, I was blind, but now I see, that's something we all can say when it comes to having eyes to see and ears to hear and having spiritual sight. At some point, Jesus did it. At some point, Jesus showed up, cut on the lights. That's a universal shared testimony that we all have, that God did something, that God showed up and helped us to see. Verses 35 through 41, Jesus heard that they had cast him out. Having found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? And he answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. And Jesus said, for judgment, I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. So in these verses, Jesus shows up and um, we see the faith of the blind man on full display. We also say, see Jesus say some very pointed words intended for the Pharisees to hear. Um, but I'll just make note of two things. In verse 38, notice that the man worships Jesus. I point that out because it's really unbelievable that an adult Jewish male would actually worship another living person. If you'll recall Israel's story, they were exiled to foreign lands because of idolatry and injustice. The recognition of idolatry being what led to that discipline was a real thing. And so it just was not something that would happen. But this man willingly worships Jesus. Right? He, he got it. In the preceding set of verses from 11 down, in verse 11, he calls Jesus Jesus. In verse 17, he calls Jesus a prophet. In verse 22, he calls Jesus the Christ or the Messiah. And then in verse 33, he recognized Jesus as being someone sent from God. Like you, you see the transition of this man uh, throughout the course of the story, coming to fully realize who Jesus is and finally worshiping him. His eyes had been opened physically and his eyes had been opened spiritually. Like he got it. But second, you also see the willing blindness of the Pharisees and the religious leaders. The people who should have seen, the people with the most knowledge, even of what the Old Testament predicted about the Messiah, they were still spiritually blind. They thought they knew everything, but their pride actually got in the way of them seeing Jesus for who he truly was. Right? What they were missing was sight. They thought they could see, but they were blind because of their own self-righteousness. They were missing the heart of God's love. They were 
missing the picture of God's love that was on full display in front of them, like right in front of them. They fully understood the argument that Jesus was making and they still willfully chose blindness in their self-affirming position against Jesus. If John chapter 9 is a story that has been told to help us see that Jesus brings light to the darkness, John chapter 9 is designed to help is to help if John chapter 9 is designed to help us see Jesus as the Messiah who gave physical sight to the blind man in the midst of his suffering, also as the Messiah who offers spiritual sight to the spiritually blind, what do we take away from this story? What do we take away? And I'm just going to present two ideas that can probably be summed up with the word grace. First, as I've already mentioned, spent a lot of time this week thinking about the realities and purposes of suffering. And this passage isn't necessarily about that, but it's hard to ignore it. In my own wrestling with this passage, it was something I just had to deal with and wrestle with. Part of that has to do with my own baggage because these verses can easily be taken out of context or can easily be used to support theological systems rather than seeing them for what they are. And in this passage, we see Jesus reach into the darkness and offer physical sight to a blind man, even as he's bringing spiritual sight to the same man. But the reality of our world, the reality of the fallen world that we live in, is that God doesn't always bring physical healing. And his people at times will suffer. And our lives will be dark and things will hurt. But in those times of suffering and darkness, whether they be physical suffering, mental suffering, whatever it is, the foundation for our hope is not actually in our theology. The foundation for our hope is in our Savior. The foundation for our hope is the fact that Jesus actually stepped into the darkness of this world to bring light. The foundation of our hope is that Jesus shows up. Our hope is not found in understanding why God brings hardship into our lives. Our hope is not found in the belief that somehow we will tough our way through it. Our hope is not found in our resilience or ingenuity. Our hope is not found in ideas or things. Though we may look to all of those things for help, ultimately our hope rests in the faithful and gracious presence of the Lord Jesus. And if this story doesn't teach us anything else, it teaches us that Jesus is not afraid of the darkness. And Jesus will willingly step into that darkness with us. It may not to bring, to bring physical healing all the time like he did for this blind man. But Jesus isn't actually afraid of the darkness. Part of what this story teaches us is that Jesus showed up into a dark world to bring light and to be present. Second, when God shows up, cuts on the lights for us. When God shows up and gives us eyes to see, it is nothing less than God making us children of 
of grace and showing us his grace in amazing fashion. As we come face to face with our need for a savior, as the reality of our sin hits home like the blind man, we can worship Jesus because God has shown up and offered his grace and cut on the lights. Like the Pharisees, it seems like it's possible to be willingly blind in our own pridefulness and self-righteousness, but there is no greater gift God offers us than his grace that comes through Jesus. Right? And God's grace may expose your blindness, but in the midst of God exposing our blindness, God's grace is going to give us eyes to see. The entire Bible is a narrative of God's grace. It is a story of undeserved redemption. It is a story that God, by his grace, is reaching into the muck of this fallen world through the presence of his son to radically transform his children into Christ-likeness. To reach into this world to bring redemption. To bring into this world to bring light. Grace is a story and a gift Grace is God's character and our hope. Grace is a transforming tool and a state of relationship. Grace is a theology and an invitation. Grace is an experience and a calling. Paul David Tripp said that, but it is so true. Grace is a story and a gift. It's God's character and our hope. All right, so the call for us this morning is pretty simple. It's just to rest in God's grace to become fully aware of it and to rest fully in it in matthew 11 verses 28 through 30 jesus says this come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and i will give you rest take my yoke upon you and learn from me for i am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy my burden is light the call for us this morning is simple. It's simply to come to Jesus. That's it. For the first time, again, uh, because we've wandered away, because we're in the midst of some darkness and misery, whatever it is, the call this morning is to come to Jesus. That's it. Come and find rest in Jesus. We're going to enter into a time of response. Um, and I would invite you, if you need to during this time, to just sit right where you are and pray Maybe grab somebody and pray with them if you need to. Uh, but in that time of prayer to um, be reminded of, of God's grace, we have an opportunity to worship. The man's going to come and lead us. We have an opportunity to give. Some of us give in other ways, but now's an opportunity to remember that um, our giving is an act of worship in and of itself. And finally, we have a time, uh, an opportunity to take communion together. We take communion every Sunday to both remember God's grace given to us and to proclaim to one another the truth of the gospel so if you're here and you're a follower of jesus and you um, can remember what christ has done and you want to proclaim that it's true then i would invite you to come and take communion you can take the, the bread and dip it in the wine or juice remember the body of christ that was broken for us um, given for us and and remember god's blood that was shed for us jesus's blood that was shed for us we all have also have little um 
sanitary cups if you'd rather have those. But in coming and taking communion, just a, just a reminder, we are remembering what Christ has done and we're proclaiming to one another that it's good and true. I'll pray for us and we'll continue in that time of response. God, thank you for this reminder.